0: Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 11-12, so grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. studying the book of Philippians, and we find ourselves toward the middle of the first chapter. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Turn to Philippians 1, verse 9. That's where we'll begin, I guess. We're looking at a prayer that Paul was offering up for the people in Philippi. This prayer comes at the end of the greeting to the Philippian church in this letter that Paul is writing to them. So let me read the prayer It's in verses 9 through 11, and then we'll continue our study in it. We uh, looked at verses 9 and 10 in our previous study, so we'll pick up in verse 11 as we dig into the book. But let me read the whole prayer starting in verse 9. Here's what Paul says, quote, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, As we talked about in our previous study, this is a prayer about love, a prayer that uh, the Philippians' love may grow, or as Paul says, may abound more and more. A prayer that their love may be informed by, as Paul says, knowledge and wisdom, or depth of insight, as Paul puts it here. A prayer that their love may be pure, in order that they may be blameless for the day of Christ, as Paul says in verse 10. And finally, in verse 11, that their love may result in them being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's where we left off, and what we'll be looking at today to begin with. The fruit of righteousness about which Paul writes in verse 11 is the outworkings of their love. This love that Paul is praying for the Philippians to have should have, uh, you know, some of this fruit or outworkings. Uh, For for a Christian, love is more than just an emotion. It's more than just some squishy feeling that you may have in your stomach. Love is something that manifests itself in some tangible way on behalf of. Of the recipient of your love. Paul here metaphorically represents this manifestation of the love that he's praying for as fruit. Uh, Paul and others in the New Testament often use the metaphor of fruit as something visible which proves the invisible. Fruit, as used in the New Testament, is the visible result which proves the true existence of some invisible character trait. So, in the familiar passage in Galatians, where Paul enumerates what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, uh, here's what he says. Um, he says the fruit of the Spirit is in verses uh, sorry, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. What he's saying there is that the proof that you are walking in the Spirit, as he begins talking about in Galatians 5:16. That's what this whole passage is all about. You know, so proof that you are walking in the spirit is that your life would exhibit these things: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. From a New Testament point of view, we are all or we should all be, shall we say, fruit trees, bearing fruit in our lives. Uh, fruit which are a proof of the internal Christian characteristics that we claim to have. If we claim to have faith, then there should be some fruit in our lives that proves that we do have faith. If we claim to be, say, walking in the Spirit of God, our our lives should demonstrate that with some sort of fruit. So here we have the same thing. Paul is praying that the Philippians would have a love that is pure and blameless as he prays in verse 10. And then he is also praying that they would demonstrate this love in some tangible way so that there are actual byproducts of this love, which is the fruit of righteousness about which Paul is speaking here. By the way, if if their love is truly pure and blameless then the fruit that comes from such a love is necessarily righteous. Righteousness should be the nature of the fruit. The fruit from such a love is not anything that would harm the recipient, but always something that would benefit them in some way, benefit them in a righteous way. And Paul also prays that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness, filled and overflowing. If you see a tree... That is filled and overflowing with fruit, which has fruit on every bough, fruit bursting from every branch, uh, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the tree is alive and thriving. So, also, we know truly that we are alive in Christ and thriving if our lives are full of fruit, full of active results, quantifiable results, which give proof that we have a living faith, filled you know, with the fruit of righteousness, fruit bursting from every bough of our metaphorical fruit tree. This fruit, as Paul points out, only comes through Christ, as Paul says in verse eleven, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, unquote. It is not fruit that comes as a result of our own saintliness or anything like that—it's not something that comes about because we are just, you know, naturally good people. You know, because we're not. Rather, it is fruit that comes as a result of the work that the Spirit of Christ does in our lives. We can do nothing good without the Spirit of Christ working through us. Christ Himself pointed this out in John chapter 15, verse 5. Here's what He said: quote, "I am the vine; you are the branches." If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, That's a strong statement. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And note that this fruit is not something that comes from intellectual book learning about the doctrines of the Christian faith. No, rather it comes through the living and active Spirit of Christ working in you. Just as Christ said, if you remain in me and I in you, that's, you know, he's talking about the spirit of Christ in you, living within you, acting within you. That's where the fruit comes from. Just as Christ said, you will bear much fruit. Finally, to end his prayer, Paul reminds us that all such fruit, all of these proofs and actions which demonstrate the existence of these internal Christian traits that we have, all such fruit must be, quote, to the glory and praise of God, unquote. Just as he says at the end of verse 11. The ultimate result of such fruit and the proof of the quality of the fruit comes from how much praise and glory God receives through it. Note here that God is praised, God is given glory as a result of the fruit that comes out of your lives. As a result of the tangible actions that you perform in service to God. Yeah, it's good to praise God with our lips and to glorify God with the singing of hymns and praises. That's all well and good, but it's not enough. That's the first step in praising God. That's the first step in giving glory to God. That's kind of the infant's way to praise and glorify God. If if you're grown up in the faith, you will not only glorify God with your hymns and praises, but also with your words and actions, with the fruit that comes out of your life, with the fruit that proves that you love God, that you Praise God that you glorify God. Matthew Henry said, quote, It is much for the honor of God when Christians not only are good, but do good and abound in good works. Unquote. God is glorified far more when Christians are out there, you know, doing stuff for the community, helping the homeless, actively serving through various church ministries that help the community you know building houses in mexico helping out your neighbor carrying his load bearing his burden hand in hand face to face god is glorified far more when we do these things than when we gather together on sunday and sing songs of praise again i'm not denigrating the singing of hymns and praises that's a good thing to do and we should do that i'm just saying that god is glorified more in the community amongst non believers, when they see Christians demonstrating love for God and love for others, rather than just singing about it, when they're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, just as Paul says here. Verse 11 ends Paul's prayer to the Philippians. Paul started most of his letters in pretty much the same way with a greeting and a blessing and a prayer. So, verse 11 ends the introductory part of the letter to the Philippians. And with verse 12, we start the meat of the letter. So let's get to that. Paul begins the meat of the letter in verses 12 through 14 by telling the Philippians how things are going with him and his ministry. Let's read those verses. Uh, Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14, quote, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Unquote. Paul was apparently concerned about how the Philippians would react to his being in captivity. Remember that we talked about the strong fellowship, the strong partnership, this strong koinonia, as it is in Greek, that the Philippians had with Paul. So they were legitimately concerned. To see Paul as a prisoner. Paul was locked up, not free to go out and preach and serve God. Some might even think that the fact that Paul was in prison, uh, that this might have been a sign from God that Paul's ministry wasn't going in the right direction or something. We humans tend to assume that any trial that we face is some kind of shall we say, punishment by God or, or communication by God that we're headed in the wrong direction. But this isn't always the case. And we especially should not automatically assume such a thing. Uh, especially when it's someone else who's experiencing the trial or affliction, I don't think we should ever say things like, "Oh, you know, Susie over there is facing a trial. God must really be mad at her," um, you know, or, or you know, we shouldn't say something like, "Oh, Joe's in trouble now. God must not have approved of how he was going about his service to God." We should never ascribe to God certain motives when we see someone else going through issues or trials or afflictions or anything. That's kind of out of place for us to do because we don't know how God is speaking to that person in his or her spirit. Uh, We only see the outside of what's going on. It may be a trial that that's meant to strengthen the other person. It may be that the other person is being magnificently blessed by God through the trial in that he or she is becoming stronger spiritually through it. The trial might even be a sign of approval from God in that God is working to strengthen that person. From the outside looking in, we don't know what's going on, so we should never ascribe to God motives for how he is working in other people. Again, it's not our place to do that. And and frankly, we don't have the knowledge to be able to do that. However, when it is we ourselves who are going through the trial, of course, it's entirely appropriate and necessary that we turn to God and seek out what he is trying to tell us, if anything, through the affliction or trial. Is it some sort of discipline? Or, or is he trying to strengthen us? Or, or is he allowing the devil to tweak us as some sort of test? Needless to say, in times of trouble, in times of trials, in times of affliction, we should be on our knees ever and often, seeking the guidance of God, listening to what he's trying to tell us in this situation as we face our difficulties. There's a great passage on the discipline of God in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read it. I'll be reading Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 12. Quote, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it how much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak Knees. That's a great passage. I recommend that you reread this passage later on and meditate on it. There's so much there. It teaches us that our trials, our troubles, rather than being proofs that God is displeased with us in some way, are rather proofs that we are God's children, that he cares for us, that he loves us, and that he wants to make us better. So I'm sure that Paul, during his long, long time in captivity four years or so, up to the point where he wrote this book, Uh, I'm sure he spent lots of time on his knees struggling with God, seeking what God was saying through all this, seeking the guidance of God. And the conclusion that he came to was that God was using his troubles to advance the gospel. So Paul let the Philippians know this in verse 12. He says right there, quote, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel." Given this, we can understand Paul's joy, uh, which he expresses many places in this letter. The gospel was the center of Paul's life. Advancing the gospel was the core purpose of Paul's existence. Paul ordered and designed everything in his life around advancing the gospel. if being in captivity and chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day served to advance the gospel, well, then Paul was all for it. Paul realized by faith that there was an overriding providence at work in his life. Paul gave his life up for the work of Christ. Paul offered himself to be a slave to Christ, a servant of God's work. And God accepted that gift and ran with it. God and Paul were working together as one, with the overriding purpose being to advance the kingdom of God. Such an overriding providence at work, such as it was in Paul's situation, is not unique with Paul in the Bible. There are countless examples in the Bible of such a thing happening where God's people are suffering, and from the world's point of view, they're losing their battles, and yet God accomplishes his purposes through the trials of his people. For example, we could look at the life of Joseph and see the same thing. Recall that Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, his favorite son, as a matter of fact. His brothers were jealous because he was Jacob's favorite and ended up throwing him in a well one day and leaving him for dead. Joseph was rescued by a caravan that was headed for Egypt and so he ended up there in Egypt. And through a bizarre set of circumstances, Joseph ended up being Pharaoh's right-hand man of sorts, with a great amount of power in directing the affairs of Egypt. Joseph, over time, was reunited with his brothers, and he chose to forgive them, though Joseph absolutely had the power to put them to death. Joseph forgave them because he saw God's hand in all the suffering that he went through. You see, there was a famine in the land, and because Joseph was in charge in Egypt, the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, would be saved. Here's Joseph's take on the situation. We find it in Genesis uh, chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph here is speaking to his brothers just after they realized who he was. Here's what he said, quote, You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We have another example of this overriding providence of God, where God uses trials to go in the direction of where He intends things to go. The early Christian church in Jerusalem went through a period of harsh persecution, ironically instigated by Paul himself, before. Paul came to know Christ. This persecution served to spread the gospel throughout the whole region. Luke describes it in the book of Acts. Let's read Acts chapter eight, verse one, and then down to verse four. Here's what he says, quote, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then on down to verse four. Those who had been scattered Preached the word wherever they went, unquote. Undoubtedly, the persecuting Jews thought that they had won in the situation. You know, woo, we won. You know, we persecuted and they all scattered. Uh, um, so, you know, often when the world looks on and sees the church suffering, the world says, oh, poor God, he's losing again. But silly world and silly us, God is in control ever and always. And Nothing happens, especially to God's people, without His approval. We mistake our affliction with God's defeat. We mistake the affliction of God's people with God's defeat. But in this, we are often wrong. We need to remember that God chooses to be victorious at times through our trials and through our afflictions and through our troubles. In fact, Verse 12, uh, back here in Philippians, could really become the motto of the Christian church. Not only the early New Testament church, but the history of the Christian church in its entirety. Uh, Where Paul says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Or in other words, my trials and afflictions have served to advance the gospel. This could be the motto of the Christian church throughout its history if you think about it. For example, the persecution of all of the apostles and the fact that all of them, except for uh, the apostle John, all of them died a martyr's death. This has been a great testimony throughout the ages for the truth of the gospel. Many people have pondered, why would they go to their deaths rather than reject the gospel if it wasn't true? I know that when I, in weak moments, start to question the truth of all this, the truth of Christ's incarnation, the truth of Christ's power, when he walked the earth, the truth of Christ's resurrection, invariably I bring to mind the perseverance of the apostles and how they withstood great persecution. This has been a great testimony throughout the ages as to the truth of the gospel, because The apostles knew christ and they were taught by christ they saw him work they saw his power they saw him suffer and die for us and and they touched the risen christ if the if the apostles had led cushy trouble-free lives it would be more difficult for me personally i think and i think many other people too uh, uh, it'd be difficult to believe in the truth of the gospel again the possible motto of the Christian church could be be this, quote, What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And there are countless examples of this, even after the New Testament times, throughout the history of the church. In fact, it became a pattern in missionary work that the first Christian missionaries to a region were nearly always persecuted and often killed. And then, invariably, because of the steadfastness of their faith in their persecution, or through their persecution, this often became the turning point which brought the indigenous people that they were uh, preaching to, it brought them to faith in Christ. There's an example of this um, uh, with a missionary whose name was Nate Saint, Uh, who was martyred by a remote tribe in the the country of Ecuador. Later, through the perseverance of Nate's sister, many of the natives became Christians. In fact, the man who killed Nate's saint later baptized Nate's son. Then there's an example in China of, of Wang Ximing from the province of Yanan in southern China. He was a prominent Christian leader in a city that had about 2,800 Christians. He was martyred in 1973 during the Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, he was martyred in front of 10,000 people as a message to them, you know, as a warning to them. You know, Don't be a Christian, here's what happens to Christians. But rather than being intimidated by his execution, the people protested. And by 1980, the number of Christians in that city had quadrupled. And there are hundreds, possibly thousands, of these stories throughout history of martyred Christians influencing the growth of the church. Tertullian, an early church father who lived about 150 years after Paul wrote, uh, he said this, quote, The blood of the martyrs, is the seed of the church." Unquote. And that certainly has been true throughout the ages. Again, as I said, a possible motto for the church can be found in verse 12 where Paul says, quote, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors, amen.